listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week, we continue our conversation with Nurul Mukhtarir Bapi. Bapi is from Bangladesh and has been working in the garment industry since 2011. Though he now works as head of operations for a sourcing office, he spent much of his career to date working for a manufacturer. Last week, we talked to Bapi about why he decided to enter the fashion industry, his time working for a manufacturer, and his feeling of being part of a sinking ship that he was powerless to save. This week, we turn to a question that in many ways is a subtle undercurrent running through many of our episodes. If life as a factory owner is so difficult, why do they remain in business? Why not quit? And why, when and if a factory manager does decide to quit, do we usually hear about them shutting down in the middle of the night, totally abandoning their workers? This leads me to share my own experience shutting down a garment factory and the challenges of trying to do this in a corrupt legal context. But not all hope is lost. There are certainly some factories out there who are thriving. Bapi shares his thoughts on what's different for those factories. The key ingredients we end up teasing out of those examples has to do with shared risk and how critical this is to changing the incentive structures that govern supply chain relationships and for nudging us towards partnership. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. <laughs> Bobby, you've painted a pretty grim picture. Life as a factory owner sounds pretty rough. Um, <laughs> it must be uh, the job our listeners yeah, want to do now. Yeah. So if business is so unprofitable and if life is so hard, why do people, why do factory owners keep going? Why don't they just quit, leave? Yeah, that's exactly the question I want to ask too many times. <laughs> One thing is, uh, okay, let's start with the negative part. One thing is there is, in Bangladesh, there is no way to quit the business per se. Bangladesh is a... Uh, it is a corrupted country. It is a third world country. We do not have systems in place. We do not have even the government offices are not functioning properly. So there are laws, there are lack of laws that is stopping the owners from, you know, getting out of the business. What happens is if I am a buying agent, like say right now I'm working for a sourcing office, for a sourcing office, he will think that having a factory would solve all of my problems. I don't have to face delay shipments, quality problems and everything. A fabric supplier thinks that my all of my margins is in the garments factory who is sewing it. A washing supplier, he thinks that the same, that okay, if I have a garment supplier, I would uh, upgrade my, uh, up, go upward my supply chain. But at the end of the day, garments is the, 
part where all the variables collide and at the end of the day they have no way to escape there is no chapter 11 in bangladesh so if you want to stop a factory immediately you cannot in bangladesh there is no furlough in place you cannot furlough your workers here you cannot lay off your workers if you lay off your workers the next day your picture will be on the newspaper and you will have like 1700 workers sitting in front of your factory gate most of them are not even your workers so you know like in this situation the for the owners to get out of a business is very difficult and there is risk in all of the business there is liability in all the businesses there are but in this case you cannot just stop it see if i in this month of september if i see that um, my liability is uh, getting out of control and in the upcoming shipments will be my last one i have to run 3 months my factory right to ship the goods that are already in production but if i give the notice to my workers that okay i am giving you this legally obligated 3 months notice that in december the factory will be closed immediately from next morning workers will stop working just they will sit on their machines with this demand that demand the accessory supplier will come banks will come lots of debacles so what happens is in most cases or not in most cases in some cases factory owners don't give a notice they just stop working after the last shipment is done and then they shut down the factory because there is no getting out so as i said that uh, sometimes people think that having a factory will solve all of their problems and also they have this confirmation from customers that okay after you have a factory i will increase the capacity that also plays a role so th this is a this is the sad part so it sounds like the law in bangladesh but actually it's not just the bangladesh from what i heard and understood i believe the same stories happened in many other countries and places that the law doesn't map out a road for factory owners to exit the business in a way to well settle the issue. It, it's more like the absence of the law leaves a blank space and just let the factory owners and the workers to straight out the settlement by whatever they can do. But I wonder if our listeners are thinking of the same question now. What else can factory owners do? Or do they have better choices? before shutting down the factories. So my last task before leaving Cambodia was actually to shut down the factory that I'd been managing and consolidate it with another one of the factories within the group that I was working for. And this was an experience which really challenged a lot of my assumptions um, about how one should or can or is able to go about exiting the business and it speaks to a lot of I want to share a little bit about that experience because it speaks to a lot of the points that you just listed Bobby but before I explain how we went through this process of shutting down the factory I think it's worth um, taking this opportunity to also even though it's not directly related uh, explain how we ended up in this situation um, and give a bit of a factory management 101 crash course 
on the different variables that were within our control and that were outside of our control. So as a factory, you have to cover the direct costs of the products that you're making. So that includes materials and the people actually physically making those goods on the production floor. And then you have overhead cost, fixed costs like rent and management staff, a cost that basically stays the same each month regardless of how many pieces you sell. So let's say your overhead is $100 per month. And let's say you sell one kind of product and the direct cost on those products, so materials and labor, is $1 per product. If you sell 100 pieces per month, you'll have $100 in direct cost plus $100 in overhead. So you would have a total cost in that month of $200. So you'd need to sell each piece for $2 in order to break even. If you sell 200 pieces in a month, you'll have $200 in direct costs, plus that's still that same $100 in overhead. So you would have effectively in a given month $300 in costs. So you would have to sell 200 pieces at $1.50 each to break even in, in very simple terms. So as a supplier, if the price the brand, the brand pays you continues to go down, you have only three options. Either you sell more products to ensure that you continue to cover your fixed overhead, or you find a way to reduce your direct costs, so the cost of your raw materials and the people making those products, or you find a way to reduce your overhead costs. So I wanna kind of step you through each of these options one by one. So the first one, the first option is to sell more products. So we, we did try and do this and we had effectively diversified our customer portfolio by quite a bit in the years preceding. But in the face of such significant requests for price decreases from our primary customer, it just wasn't enough. We, we also were looking for a certain kind of customer because we didn't want to end up in the same situation down the line just with someone else. We were looking for smaller, sustainability-minded brands who shared our values, partners whose smaller size meant that we came to the negotiating table on more equal footing, partners who didn't work with lots of other suppliers, meaning it was harder for them to switch an order over to someone else over a couple of cents, um, and, and working with smaller brands who didn't have lots of suppliers and for whom it was harder to switch suppliers meant that they really had a vested interest in our success. So that was the kind of relationship we were looking for. And so while this was the best long-term strategy for the company, it also meant customers who placed orders for smaller quantities of products and that their orders weren't enough to replace the revenue we'd lost from our primary customer over the years due to, due to price pressure. So the second option is you find a way to reduce your direct cost, the cost of your raw materials and the people making those products. So maybe in some cases there are efficiency gains to be had, like, you know, for example, where you can improve your technique or get faster and therefore cheaper at making a product. But we were making cleaning cloths that get sold with eyeglasses or with eyeglass pouches, so literally squares. And there were only so many improvements we could make to improve, you know, to get for efficiency gains. There, and, and meanwhile, the reality was that our direct costs were actually going up year on year. Minimum wages were rightly increasing and inflation meant that our raw materials were getting more expensive too. So we had our primary customer asking for prices that were 10 to 20% cheaper year on year, while our direct costs were actually going up. So this, this really only exacerbated the problem. And the third option 
is that you could find a way to reduce your overhead costs. And this is what we ultimately settled on. It was the only viable option. The factory that we wanted to shut down was in a rented space, and we had enough land at one of our other factories, which was also land that the company owned, to be able to consolidate the two factories with minimal extra investment. So instead of having two HR departments, two security teams, etc., we could cope with just a slightly increased management staff at the second facility. It was also operationally simpler to have everything under one roof. And the practical reasons we'd, we'd set up or for which we'd set up two different facilities in the first place no longer really um, applied or were relevant. So I want to reiterate, our decision to consolidate these two factories was made because it was the surest way of guaranteeing the livelihoods of the largest number of people over the long term in the face of this ongoing price pressure from some of our biggest customers. And had we done nothing, we would have continued to lose money in this one factory. And this ultimately would have jeopardized not only the jobs of the people who worked in the factory that I managed, but also those who worked in other factories. That's the end of my factory management 101 class. But I, I, I just think it's, it's useful to have as context and as understanding because otherwise, if I talk about closing the factory, you might, listeners might be wondering, well, you know, what did they do wrong to end up in this situation in the first place? And it shouldn't matter you know, how difficult it is to shut down a factory is irrelevant if the factory managers can just get it right in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And shutting down a factory is not just a single factor issue here either. I mean... It's incomplete if we just look at what the factories did or could do. And it's also not really about morality, good factories or bad factories. It's also not really a technical issue whether the suppliers perform well or not. I think this question, why not quit the business and how difficult to quit the business, is more like a consequence from an unbalanced power play. There are some hidden roles behind. Only when we bring those hidden roles up front to the stage, for example, like governments, buyers, brands, then the picture can become more clear and start to review the impact each role played inside. Well, about that, uh, I'd love to hear the details of Kim's story. The factory that we were closing was its own legal entity and was out of money. So in other contexts, the bankruptcy would have been the obvious option. The challenge was, as you say, Bobby, that it was very difficult to declare bankruptcy. The lawyers we met with told us it was basically impossible and strongly advised against it. They said it would have taken years and a significant amount of money. We read between the lines that, it would have, we, that we would have had to pay a lot of bribes. So filing for bankruptcy wasn't an option. So the next option we had available at our disposal was basically just a mass layoff. And under Cambodian labor law, when staff are, are terminated um, in, you know, in cases that aren't related to gross misconduct, they are entitled to notice period and to severance pay. And they are also entitled to claim for damages. Now, if the factory redundancies are for valid reasons, the factory may be able to avoid damages, but only the court can decide what a valid reason constitutes. So just like filing for bankruptcy is undesirable when the government is corrupt, so too is going to court. 
It's my experience that workers in Cambodia, upon being terminated, usually claim damages on top of their severance and their notice period. So with regard to damages, we had three options. Either we paid the damages and avoid the problem completely, but for a high price, it roughly doubled the payment to our workers. Or we took our chances in court and prepared ourselves for a long, drawn-out and opaque battle that also would have cost us. Or we negotiated an agreement directly with the workers. We considered the third option of negotiating an agreement directly with the workers, and we met with the Ministry of Labor to get their input, and their perspective surprised me. It was November 2019, a particularly tense political moment for the country as the leader of the opposition had announced his intention to try and return from abroad. So the Ministry of Labor was very keen to avoid any unrest and indicated that they would support us to talk with workers, explain that we were indeed closing for financial reasons, and urge them not to pursue damages. They thought there was a good chance of success, but that it would likely have taken a couple of days of strikes to resolve. Our lawyers had been part of cases where machines and equipment were also damaged as a result. It's important to point out that in conversations about workers' rights, government is often referred to as a monolithic stakeholder. But what I experienced in this situation was the opposite. I'm going to speculate or make an educated guess that the branch of government dealing with bankruptcy had very different things driving its decisions relative to the Ministry of Labor. Sure, it's all one government and one party in this case. But the support of garment workers is very important to the ruling party. Garment workers are a key stakeholder, therefore, for the Ministry of Labor. Again, I'm making some educated guesses. But even if I'm wrong about the details or the specifics, what remains true is that government isn't a monolithic stakeholder with a single common set of interests. And in Cambodia, I think just like you alluded to, Bapi, in Bangladesh, you often hear about factories closing up overnight without any notice and totally abandoning their employees. And I think as an outsider, myself included, you know, as an, even as an, as, a, as, as an insider, as a factory manager in Cambodia who had not personally experienced trying to close down a factory, I looked at those stories that I read in the news and I said, this is, is unconscionable. You know, how could a company just abandon its employees, its workers like this? You know, and I, I kind of thought, I kind of reduced it to these owners or these managers being bad people. And um, in hindsight, that was, I'm not sure whether the right word is unfair or incomplete or maybe some combination thereof. It, I was sort of, I think, subscribing to a, a single story that I'd heard over and over about factory managers and the way they treat their staff that to explain something that I didn't understand. Um, but after having been through this myself, I suddenly understood why this and I, and I don't say I condone or even justify or even that I would have made the same decision, but I understood why factories were doing this. Because I think even if you want to, to honor your commitments to your workers, the local context in this case made it very difficult to do so. Your choice was either you pay out a lot of money or you abscond in the middle of the night. There's really no, com there's no middle ground. 
And so in the end, and to the credit of the owner of the factory that I was managing, we decided to simply commit to paying the damages up front. And a lot of factories probably would not have been in the position to have made the choice financially that we were able to make. It's uh, it's sad to have to shut down a facility, but somehow it's also a bit um, lucky that Pactics could have this financial ability to be able to make that choice. Right now, I'm thinking the question we asked at the beginning of this episode: Why suppliers don't just quit the business? I can see the question involved to do suppliers have better choices. From Bap, your story and Kim, your experiences, it seems there are even no options at all. Why? I guess that's because it's a systematic issue. There's so many factors, so many elements play in it. When one thing goes wrong, several reactions will be triggered along different paths, and as a supplier, many reactions are totally out of their control. I want to share one story I experienced when I was in China. A few years ago, when I worked as a merchandising manager for a French group in Shanghai, we have a very good supplier. The business owner used to work as a trader, so they understood very well what brands or retailers want. They wanted to have a better control of quality and delivery time, and of course, if they do a vertical integration, trading plus garment making, they can get a Bigger slice of the cake from the market, so they decided to open a garment factory. With their own capital, they also made some loan from the bank. They rent a big piece of land with new buildings on it. They purchased the machines and hired skilled workers. Started the business as a garment manufacturer. It went very smooth at the beginning, but quickly things turned wrong. Buyers were late for a few approvals before Christmas, and late again before Chinese New Year. Late approval caused late manufacturing. Late manufacturing means late shipment, and late shipment means big payment discount, or even worse, no payment, as the orders will be cancelled even the products were made. So to catch up with a very tight schedule, the supplier arranged the shift, which caused strikes. In the end, a few big orders were just cancelled. And that made the first crack on their capital chain. They struggled for a while before closing the factory. I still remember the long, slow, and painful feeling to witness their closing the factory, and I still feel very sorry for them. The rental contract is usually for three or five years, or even for longer time, and when they can't carry on. And decided to quit business. In lots of cases, there are still some bank loans needs to be paid, some payment needs to be collected from the, from their clients, and some payment needs to be wired to their suppliers, and some arrangement needs to be done with their employees. Those are the strings holding a garment supplier stay in the industry. That they can't just quit easily. Ultimately, I think in the fashion industry as a manufacturer, there's a very low cost of entry. And a very high cost of exit, and so it's like once you're in, you're kind of stuck.、Um, yeah, stuck is the right word. <laughs> how do we break this cycle? <laughs> That's a very big question, actually. I 
I haven't figured it out, but uh, I think we can also look at the reality or look at the real life. There must be, of course, some I clues. know. Yes, and of course, it happened. It, it's happening all the time. There are some factories who are doing very well, and I am wondering the reasons behind uh, the fact they are doing very well. What could be? What could be the reasons and why? So, Bappy, what do you think? I do have to say that despite all of this, all of this, there are thriving factories in Bangladesh. There are very bright individuals who are working in Bangladesh. There are very astonishingly supportive customers we have seen along the way who have always been there to actually invest in this business and develop this. What, what do you think? The what do you think is different about those? What's the ingredient that makes those companies such a, a success or an example? Uh, uh, I don't know main, much about the very good factories in Bangladesh, or uh, not much. I mean the background story. But what we do see is that for them, their customer is occupying a big chunk of their capacity, and their customers are investing in their supply chain. Say, for example, one of the customer is paying for the fabric, or one of the customer is paying for the accessories, or shipping the goods in free of cost (FOC). So there's shared risk. They are sharing the risk, and that completely changes the narrative. Then their quality people will not come to factory to give rechecks or make short shipment because he knows that I have to report to my office that why there was a short shipment, why there was a goods recheck. So I can't just hold the factory responsible and then ask a bribe to pass the inspection. That changes the entire narrative. And when we have during COVID time, we have seen that the most of the medium great customers who lack supply chain, who lack development skills. They are actually better in terms of commitment, in terms of payment. Maybe because they are small, they are small scale. They can manage better, but the very big ones, because they have a global the, the brands, you mean? More. Yeah, the brands. They they are sometimes riskier. They are very riskier, and the commitment wise, risk sharing, risk wise, they are not a very good partners for the factories. Yeah, or like one of the things that we found at Pactix was that like working with customers who were smaller, we also we had similar experience to you that the customers who were smaller were actually much better partners, and I think it was because like you're somehow less replaceable, you know. And like what you said, Kim, uh, in in another day, you described a.、Uh... You and me, I think, our former client, <laughs> that、uh, he said he doesn't. The reason he doesn't want to place order because he doesn't want to put all the eggs in one basket. So it's like a default setting. And if you see、yeah. your suppliers as risks, you will not buy the fabric. You will not share their financial pressure and so on. You just say, you just think how to prevent,、uh, how to cut keep my profit and、uh, how to prevent them. Losing them is like losing business. Then you naturally want to have lots of suppliers can switch in between. And if you see the suppliers、mm-hmm. as partners, then you naturally want to share their financial pressure as you rely on them to deliver the goods you want. So it's totally different mindset. I found the little piece, Papi. You, you, you discussed,、uh, you described. It's also very interesting to point out. You said when the brand buy the fabric for the factory, then the quality team from the brand said, "We are not just to take a bribe, or we are not just give a rejection. They will do their job as what it、uh, it meant to do to be done." And that's just so funny because 
you know, the, the switch happens. Checking the fabric at, uh, in, in another situation, checking the fabric is uh, your problem. I'm here to check your problem. It's my job. And then after the brand buy the fabric for the factory, the definition changed. The position changed. Completely, it becomes, it's completely. my job to check my company's fabric. So it's so interesting. When you change the setting, the whole context change, and then the whole story changed, and then everything yeah. different. And when I am spending $1 million to set up a green factory, why can't you spend $10,000 to buy me fabrics? Exactly, yeah, yeah. This is the first time in COVID situation when we saw that workers and owners, after a long time, they actually came forward and named the brands who did not pay. This is the first time in Bangladesh's history because normally we don't like announce the names of the customers. But this time it was like, no, there is no difference. Let's fight together. So, you know, like on desperate times, uh, there are some good things, good opportunities come as well. Uh, well, Bapi, this was so interesting and I learned so much from you and I'm so glad that you reached out and that we had a chance to have this conversation and hopefully it's not the last. <laughs> yeah, hopefully exactly. one day we'll meet again. And thank you for sharing because I know it's not easy. I know there are a lot of people who are very nervous and would not share as openly and as candidly as you did. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do. So please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.